the teaching series where we've been looking at each of the different themes of Advent but talking about how they might be practiced in community. The whole premise of the series is let's do Advent together. And in order to do Advent together, let's do Advent differently. Rather than Advent being that season where we just kind of add more and more and more and more things into our already overstuffed schedules so that we're running like chickens with their heads cut off all the way and just kind of fumble and stumble and flop our way into Christmas and the end of the year. What if we were to actually slow ourselves down intentionally and take some things off the calendar, take some things off the schedule in order to be really present to this moment, present to God, present to each other, and attuned to what God is doing in this season of Advent. That's been the real heart behind the series. And so we started several weeks ago where, you know, the very first week of the, of the series, we unpacked Jesus' vision of community. And we saw that Jesus' vision of community was a new or an alternative family, one that we were all invited to and the practice, and we've had an had a intentional kind of community practice each week along the way. And the practice for that week was to slow down for loving union with God and with others. How's that been going? Have we been growing in that over the last few weeks? Has that been realized in our lives? I'm not seeing many confident nods out there, I'll be honest. It's been a a challenging season in which to live into that, hasn't it? It has. It's okay. It's okay. But then the second week we talked, as we lit the, the candle of hope, we talked about being a community of hope. And we realized, and and the teaching that week was around how a community of hope is only realized when we make the intentional move from spectating to participating in community, where we actually prioritize it enough and we say, we're in, we're going to prioritize, we're going to participate as part of the community. That's when hope begins to rise within us. Then David brought a message on the the, community of peace, talking about how as Jesus was, so we're called to be peace makers. In those places where there's an absence of peace, we're called to help bring peace. And how too often we settle for false peace. You remember that? That we kind of settle for false peace. So peacemakers are those who disrupt false peace in order to usher in true peace and experience true peace. It was a great message. And then last week, Miriam Fisher was with us and brought a good message around being a community of joy, talking about how God's joy is reflected in the community of faith when we practice a joy that gathers everyone in, those who are marginalized and left out and often overlooked. God's joy is a joy that gathers everyone in and it was a wonderful message last week. Today, we lit the candle of love. Thanks, uh, Denise, for leading us in that moment at the beginning of worship together. And as we lit the candle of love, um, uh, today, the, the message that I'm going to bring um, was going to be called a community of love, but I changed it up and I, I'm calling it the cornerstone of community, which is love. The cornerstone of community, which is love. So let's dive in together, shall we? You know, for a number, a number of years ago, there was a significant research project that the Barna Group undertook in, in, in around the world. So over three years, looking across the world at, the, at millennials, those who at the time were aged between the ages of 18 and 35 years of age. Maybe a lot of you fall within this generation. And, and they were looking at their faith. So these were people who were people of faith or grown up in the church, people of faith, um, and how that their, their faith was being lived out in this current cultural moment. The research assessed that uh, life in our current cultural moment was that of a digital Babylon, was the term that they came to call it, digital Babylon. That is, 
the digital age is the greater culture, the dominant power. This is where we are globally living and operating within. It's like the biblical Babylon, you know, which was a culture that was set against the purposes of God. It was a human society that glorified pride and power and prestige and pleasure. Well, in our post-Christian secular age, disciples of Jesus and Christian community are now like that of Israel when Israel was exiled to Babylon. Only now, it's not a physical place, but a digital one, orchestrated on our screens and our smartphones each and every moment of every day. The church in this age is no longer the dominant power, but instead lives in exile within it, in a sense. This is the whole premise of their, of their research. And Barna wanted to know how millennials were doing at navigating faith within it. Here's what their research showed. When the recipients were asked how they were expressing, uh, uh, and how they expressed living out their faith, 38% referred to themselves as prodigals. Prodigals. These were deconverted, people who had walked away from faith and found any sense of faith meaningless to them. 32% referred to themselves as nomads. Those who, this is those who have fallen out of any kind of active engagement in a church. So they're not as, as kind of hostile and reactionary as the, as the prodigals, but they're still uh, fallen out of regular engagement in church. 22%, though, referred to themselves as habitual churchgoers. Well, they didn't refer to themselves. These were the categories that the researchers put on them. Let's just be honest. Those who go to church, but whose life practices don't align with the core beliefs of Jesus' way. This is the habitual churchgoers, which means only 8% of those studied, only 8% referred to themselves as resilient disciples. That's those who form richly experienced lives with Jesus, forge meaningful intergenerational relationships in His church, develop cultural discernment and engage in countercultural mission. Now, we might read this term, resilient disciples, and think, oh, that's pretty solid, eh? I wish I was a resilient disciple. But actually, according to the Scriptures and according to church history, the definition of what they're applying there and calling resilient disciples, most of the rest of church history would just call basic Christianity. It's not some high bar, super spiritual state at all. It's basic Christianity that's been lived in, in terms of following Jesus for a long time. And so that term, resilience, really important. And so in, uh, in a book that came out on the heels of this research, David Kinnaman and Mark Matlock, in a book called Faith for Exiles, they reflected on this research project and they started asking, what is this current reality doing to this generation's view of relationships as they're formed and being shaped by this digital Babylon context? Here's what they, here's what they noted. See if any of these kind of ring true for your own experience. The emerging generation growing up in digital Babylon are formed to fear uh, commitment, to fear commitment and place personal autonomy before belonging, relationships, and community. The social media age of digital Babylon advocates for having a great number of weak relational ties at the expense of a few strong relational ties. Digital Babylon is forming the emerging generation in a high-performance culture that teaches to put things and achievements before people and community. Digital Babylon erodes social capital which is the fuel of healthy communities, and Digital Babylon's failing life script creates in us a lack of personal formation and poor emotional health, which undermines the building of meaningful community. As they say in summary, the authors summed it up saying, those growing up in Digital Babylon are becoming more autonomous, less emotionally healthy, 
and the art of being building community is being lost. Bit sobering, eh? Bit sobering. This is perhaps why some of you really struggle when Thursday night rolls around to actually get yourself to life group. This, this helps explain for some of us why, you know, even that social engagement on a Saturday night that normally you'd be frothed about and excited to go to, you're just like, eh, couldn't be bothered this week, right? This is because, this is why we often, so, so often will click the maybe button on any Facebook event we're invited to. Don't you love the maybe button? We all love the maybe button. Or if you click the yes button, you'll always know at least you can opt out and bail on the last minute, right? You know, this is because you are literally being formed by our wider digital culture in such a way that the thought of pre-committing to actually showing up at something causes anxiety, doesn't it? Anyone, if we're uh, open and, and, and honest for a moment? And we're being conditioned that it's normal to being doing life alone and the conditioning is winning now when i talk about doing life alone let me just be clear i'm not talking about like those who live alone whether by choice or not by choice that that may be that may be part of it you know but doing life alone you can still live alone but actually do life together with others you get what i'm saying right so let me just make that clear people more and more are now living alone and in their own personal bubbles. This is, the, this is the real issue. It's the issue of personal bubbles. In the EU, the European Union, the one-person household now outnumbers any other household type. And in Japan and Korea, it's trending rapidly in the same direction. And so much so that now in furniture stores, you can buy a one-person dinner table. Do you know that? It's a thing. Might be really convenient for your apartment, though, if you do actually live alone. I get it. But notice that, that you know, and, and, and you've, caught, you've caught like how the personal bubbles thing actually works in, in like our life. All you have to do is like jump on a bus or hop on a plane and all you see is everyone putting on their headphones, right? Or putting their earbuds and switch on noise cancelling mode and they're in their own personal bubbles lest anyone ever kind of like shoulder tap and say, hey, you know, start a conversation. That would be like, no, you just don't do that. I mean, the global headphone and earphone market is currently worth over $22 billion with a current and continued growth rate of more than 8% a year worldwide. Turns out that keeping people in personal bubbles is a really good way to make some money. And I don't know about you, but when I was a teenager and, and as a child growing up in, with you know, our family, we went to church and nearly the entire church, they would, they would be at midweek Bible studies and shared a meal with other people during the week. And those who didn't, they were the minority. But now in most of the Western church, ours included here at the well, less than half are consistently engaged in midweek group life of any kind. And that number is only trending down. This means now the majority of people in Western churches are not practicing a form of being with other people in a committed and regular way. But following Jesus is not meant to be done in the way of digital Babylon, friends. Alone in our own personal bubble, no. It's not done at a distance or in fear or without belonging. The kingdom of God is likened to the image of a great party or a giant banquet, right? banquet of guests around a table. It's not one dining alone, but with a, a number of others gathered around. We're made for a space of belonging and meaningful relationships. And though our current cultural stage and season might be saying otherwise, we are meant to be doing life together. 
which is why in, in, in discussing and reflecting on community, Dallas Willard once commented, he said, to experience the kingdom of God, a group of people should get together and simply try to do the things that Jesus instructed his disciples to do. Isn't that great? I love it. Just get together and try. Try to do what Jesus and his disciples did. Mark Scandretti kind of says something really similar in his book, Practicing the Way of Jesus. He says, we don't enter the kingdom of God merely by thinking about it or listening to one another talk about it. We have to experiment together. I love that phrase with how to apply the teachings of Jesus to the details of our lives. We need an active learning environment where participation is invited and expected. Invited and expected. We need a learning community where we can experiment how to apply these teachings of Jesus. What a wonderful invitation, isn't it? There's no like, don't beat yourself up over it, let's just give it a nudge kind of a spirit, right? That's Kiwi as, it sounds like, you know? Like, let's just get together and give this thing a crack. Why not? What do we got to lose? I think it's awesome. And I think it's actually consistent with the kind of biblical message around community. You know, Jesus, in John chapter 15, after teaching on the necessity of abiding with the Father. I mean, John chapter 15, this is, this is the verse that we know where Jesus talks about the vine and the branches and abiding in me. And if you abide in me, if you remain in me, you'll bear much fruit. It's a great promise of John chapter 15. That all comes immediately before this teaching. Basically, immediately following that, Jesus begins to unpack what does this actually mean to abide and remain in him? Well, you can't do it alone, it turns out. He says in John chapter 15, verse, starting in verse 9, Jesus begins to flesh out how, you, how to put it into action. He says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in His love. I have told you this, so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Those who were here last week, I hope you're hearing echoes back to Miriam's message from last week. Verse 12, Jesus says, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for, his, for one's friends. If you skip down just a couple of verses, he reinforces this point in verse 17 when he says, this is my command, love each other, love one another. This is, if you will, the top shelf teaching of Jesus on what it means to belong to this new family of, that he's creating, what it means to actually do life in community. Paul picks it up later where he talks about faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. Remember? This is the top shelf teaching. This is the love as the cornerstone of community life together. You see what I'm saying? A space of love and belonging has been created by Jesus in order for us to be drawn into, that we might experience a space of love and belonging. And Jesus says, go and do that for others. That's how you show love. Offer and create a space of beloved and belonging for others. Well, what does that actually mean? How do we embody it and practice it? Well, it's kind of skip down through some of the lower shelves, if you will, of Jesus' teaching to flesh it out a little bit. Not lower in, le in the less important or less priority, but like just kind of, let's, let's just kind of 
flesh it out a bit. And I've got a long list coming up here. So there's 10 things going to show up on the list. Precursor, a bunch of people at the 9 o'clock were snapping photos of this list. Wait until the end, then you'll get it all on one slide. They're going to build in one by one. All right? Pro tip, there you go. Here you go. He says, uh, Jesus says, we seek to have a common attitude towards one another, where we do to others as we have them do to us, is what, it says, is what Jesus teaches in Matthew 7, right? We serve one another like Jesus who washed the feet of his disciples. And, and he says, I've washed your feet, so you should wash one another's feet. I've set an example that you should do as I have done for you. We forgive tenaciously. We take Jesus' teaching seriously in Mark 11, where he says, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. We overcome anger. This is classic Sermon on the Mount stuff, right? In Matthew 5, where Jesus says that anger is worse than murder, right? He kind of ups the ante on it. We overcome anger. Is, is, this, is this describing much of your community experience, by the way? Is this, this measure, just kind of measure it up and see how you go, you know, like do a little self-evaluation. We don't judge, but we learn to exercise discernment. Hopefully some of this is echoes back to the Centered series where we were unpacking the Sermon on the Mount about trusting people well. And again, this is from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7 where Jesus taught that we're not to judge or we too will be judged. We're not to give to dogs what is sacred or our pearls to pigs. In other words, learn to know what treasures of relationship to place with whom. We seek reconciliation with people that we've wronged. Jesus teaches this in Matthew 5. If you, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that you have something against someone, leave your gift there, go first and be reconciled, then come and offer your gift. We deal directly with those who have wronged us. In Matthew 18, Jesus teaches a paradigm where we're to work with those who have wronged us rather than triangulating and kind of going around using other people to get around them. We keep our promises and our commitments. This one rubs a little bit when we think about the old digital Babylon idea, right? And this is, if I'm honest, one for our generation that's really critical because it's one of the great killers of relationships and community. And one of the most needed postures in our, in our current context, you know, the, the whole maybe culture, you know, is to take seriously the words of Jesus where he says in Matthew 5, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Let's keep our promises and our commitments. We love our enemies and bless those who curse us. In communities of belonging, we can be honest about those that we struggle most with and our community can help us to turn a cheek or give a coat or give a shirt as Jesus talks about in Luke chapter 6. Finally, we welcome children and consider how to positively affect future generations. In Mark 9, Jesus said, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. Those behind us in age are all part of God's new family too. And we do well when we consider how to positively affect those future generations. See, these, these are just like little snapshots, little glimpses, sketches of a life lived in the way of that great command of sacrificial love that Jesus gave in John chapter 15. They're practices of small deaths, of laying our lives down, and they're actions that tell of a greater trajectory of living out the, that greatest commandment of love, not just in theory, but in real time, real life. And here's the truth. These things can't be done on our own. 
They can't. It's why Dallas and Mark say what they say, that to experience the kingdom of God, we must do it together with some other people. And at the beginning of the series, some of you may remember that I said, in community, you will grow. You will grow. Maybe now you can begin to see why, because life in this alternative new family of God is an invitation to all kinds of interpersonal growth and development, and you just can't do it when you're alone. I mean, I wonder what happens if we begin to get it right. I wonder what that might actually look like. And we've seen in Acts chapter 2, some of the, uh, you know, where it records some of those actions of the first church who some of those early disciples, followers of Jesus, trying to embody and live this out in practice together. This group of people who'd committed themselves to life together in this way of love. They were eating together and studying the scriptures together and praying together and sharing their stuff, all their things, you know, so that no one was in need. And we see this early church created a shared culture, a community of practice where whole life transformation was expected and was supported and we see the fruit of it, right? This way of life that they lived with others in real time and in real ways became so compelling and attractive that it explodes in numbers and it tells us in the end of Acts chapter 2 that the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. It was like you know, the, 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 the flies to the fly zapper. You know, like I grew up in Queensland. You have those mozzie zappers, you know, like on the castle. You've seen that film, eh? You, you know, like it's the serenity. Um, yeah. You know, it's like that. You know, you can't not. You're just sucked in. You're drawn to it. You know, it's like that kind of compelling community. Um, and so what started as one command from one man in Jesus was being built out into something new and, and just beautiful, this group of people displaying God's love like a new temple where God's spirit was dwelling. And years later, after this wider spread of this way of life across the Mediterranean, the Apostle Paul would encourage the Ephesian church saying, in Christ, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. This is what God's doing. What, a, what an incredible picture and portrait of what happens when the church is serious about the community work of intentionally building loving and meaningful relationships. But don't forget, we're currently living in digital Babylon, a culture that is pushing back entirely on this vision of life in loving and meaningful relationships. And so to live in counter-formation against its quest for personal autonomy, we need to be very intentional and live another way. We need to. And choosing to live another way means intentionally prioritizing community. It's exactly what Jesus had in mind when Jesus was forming the new family of God, where Jesus says, actually, you want to know what it means to belong to the new family of God? Jesus says, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. This is, this is when, when actually Jesus was teaching with a bunch of disciples sitting around and a, and a crowd gathered around and, and Jesus' mother and brothers literally showed up outside the house and they couldn't get in because the crowd was so big. They couldn't get in to get Jesus and so they sent a message and the disciples say, hey Jesus, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside. They've come to see you. And he says, no, no, no. Whoever does the will of my father 
Jesus resets loyalty to this whole new family, this whole new community. He says, your, your loyalty isn't anymore to your bloodline. Your loyalty isn't anymore primarily to your spouse or your kids. No, your loyalty is first and foremost to this new family that I am building. Whoever does the will of my father, that's my mother and my brother and my sister. And we could talk forever about what it means to actually make that kind of a commitment. To live into that depth of loyalty. But hey, that's probably a whole other sermon for a whole other time. Because this week, it's the fourth Sunday of Advent. We're supposed to be talking about love, Clint. And so let's spend the rest of our time talking about how we choose love as a way of counterformation against personal autonomy. Because it's impossible to love and be loved alone. If we're in our own personal bubbles, isn't it? You ever notice that? You ever notice, you know, the Apostle Paul in his first letter to the Corinthians, he emphasizes the importance of love for healthy community and life together. And so he begins in the end of, in the end of chapter 12, he says, and yet I'll show you the most excellent way. Let me show you what this looks like. Chapter 13, he says, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. See, Paul is reinforcing here the importance of love and how it's truly the cornerstone to healthy community life together. And then in verse 4, we pick up one of the most famous passages in Scripture, because most weddings, you'll hear this passage quoted. You, uh, but here's the truth. Remember, Paul's not writing to a bride and a groom on their wedding day. Paul's writing to the gathered community in Corinth. He's writing to the church in Corinth. This is, this is being written to a community. So don't think wedding, think church, right? Paul says, love is patient, Love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. You may kiss the bride, right? <laughs> Right? You've heard, you've heard it over and over again, haven't we? Right? But basically, the, what, what Paul's wanting to reinforce is true love, friends. True love is the cornerstone of community. And you can't experience true community in this new family of Jesus without a proper response of love. Love that is not patient and kind. Love that is not easily angered. Which, by the way, you don't need to be patient or kind or not easily angered if you're just doing life on your own, do you? Because that's not where patience gets tested. That's not where kindness gets tested, is it? I don't know about you, but I am not easily angered when I've got my headphones on, I'm watching a movie, riding on a plane. You know what I'm talking about? In, in my own personal bubble. Like, I, You see it? It's only in relationship with others that we feel impatient and unkind and easily angered. And these things come to life, don't they? True love is only experienced and expressed in relationship with God and with others. And if we're honest, there's, 
It's, the, it's, it's one of the deepest aches inside each and every one of us, isn't it? It's the thing we long for the most, to be fully seen and known and loved. It's normal. It's how we're created. It's how we're, who we're meant to be. And so, the practice I want to bring to us this week as we live into this, friends, the practice to becoming a community of love and I'm totally stealing this from Peter and Jerry Scazzaro in their Emotionally Healthy Relationship stuff, is the practice of incarnational listening. And I'm going to spend the rest of the talk just kind of unpacking what that means, how we can practically live this out with each other. Because listening well is a powerful way to express love to another person. Most of us have heard sermons all about the need to listen well and being slow to speak and all that kind of stuff, right? But the truth is, if you're anything like me, listening doesn't come naturally to you or to me. It doesn't come naturally to any of us. If you're anything like me, we didn't learn to be good listeners while growing up in our families of origin. But it is a crucial skill that we can learn and we can grow in, we can mature in. It remains one of the most significant ways we can practically demonstrate our love for one another. David Augsburger once said, being heard is so close to being loved that for the average person, they're almost indistinguishable. I've seen a few nods out there. Maybe some of you have experienced that, right? Being truly heard is so close to being loved that for the average person, they're almost indistinguishable. Why do we call it incarnational listening? Because as followers of Jesus, we model and we pattern our lives after our rabbi, our Messiah, Jesus the incarnate one who we celebrate at Christmas, God who became human, took on flesh, became like one of us, became one of us. And Advent is this season where we recognize and we celebrate the coming of Christ. And Jesus' incarnation serves as a beautiful model of listening. Think about it. Jesus left his world. When we listen well to others, we leave our own world. Jesus entered our world when we listen well we enter another world another's world through listening too jesus held on to himself when he became human became one of us he didn't leave behind his his godness he didn't leave behind his divinity he remained god he held on to himself in the midst of it you see being human the same is true for us when we listen well doesn't mean we have to agree with everything this is a big, huge concept in here called differentiation. If you want to go down a deep rabbit hole, that's a, that's, that's a good one for you. To become well differentiated as a person is a huge deal. Um, and then fourthly, Jesus hung between two worlds. This is what it means for us to incarnately listen well to another person, where we may not like what we hear, but we can hang between the tension of these different perspectives, where we don't necessarily have to agree because the aim of incarnational listening is to listen at a heart level. It's to listen with empathy, right? And, and some of you are going, well, Clint, I've done my strengths. And, uh, you know, if you're anything like me, your strength of empathy is, there's 34 strengths, by the way. I think strength of empathy is number 33 for me. Um, so it's like way down there. So I'm saying this with great hope for you and encouragement that you can learn, you can grow, you can learn to listen with empathy where you are attuned to the words and the nonverbal communication of another person. It's not just the things that they're saying. 
All right? Attunement is, is listening to words, uh, to, uh, to the nonverbal communication. So paying attention to those facial expressions and tone of voice and if there's tears and body posture and the intensity of the language being used. All of this is so that the person feels felt by you. Right? The, the, the prize here is not just the transfer of information, but actually the ability to connect emotionally. That's the real gift. That's where love enters the picture. And so practically, the invitation for each of us is, we could put this into practice over Christmas break. Because if you're anything like me, you're gearing up for some extended periods of time where you're living with people who you maybe wouldn't normally live with under the same roof. Or maybe under the same tent canopy or something, you know, if you're camping or whatever you might be, right? In, in close proximity with people you wouldn't normally be interacting and living with. This is where patience and kindness and anger and those things, you know, get, get, get kind of tested, right? And so here's how you can put this into practice. This is what incarnational listening actually looks like. And I'm just going to lay it out. It's going to sound really wooden, really mechanical, but if you want to go for true emotional connection rather than just transfer of information, here's what you could do. Jamie and I have actually done this a few, few times on date nights um, as a way of you know, just, just connecting. So on a date night, we'll, we'll ask, and, and you could just ask this question. Tell me about what's going on with yourself. Hey, what's the biggest thing impacting you right now? And how are you feeling about it? That's such a simple question, right? You don't even need to write it down. You can memorize that one. You know, what's the biggest thing impacting you right now and how are you feeling about it? And then, after asking that question, you switch into listener mode. And listener mode, when you're actively listening, you practice incarnational listening, where you give that person your full attention. So you might need to shift your posture so you're actually turning to face them. You might meet, I actually you give good eye contact, you know, which is something that I had to learn. I remember as, as, a, as a youth pastor when just starting out in ministry, I had a mentor once call me out and he's like, Clint, Oftentimes when I'm with you and talking with you, I can't tell if you're with me or not because you're look, looking over here, looking over there, and like you never look at me. And I just don't even, like, he totally called me out, bless him. Um, it, was, it, was, it was so helpful for me, you know, to learn, and so I've had to learn how to give good eye contact. Give the person your full attention. Step into their shoes and feel what they're feeling. This is the practice of empathy, isn't it? You, where you begin to feel what they're feeling. Avoid judging or interpreting, and I might add on here, or fixing, or advice giving, or opinion offering, or any of those, like just avoid it. This is not your time and space. This is not as good as your advice is, I'm sure. You've got the best wisdom and, and you've got the best solution in the world, I'm sure of it. But this is not the time and space to be offering that. This is the time and space to avoid those things and just listen, 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 listen. Um, and then when there does come a gap, repeat back what you've just heard them say. And I mean word for word, repeat back what you've heard them say. Literally, as accurately as possible, reflect back what you've heard them say. Now, oftentimes, um, I've got uh, this weird ability where, you know, Jamie will say things to me, you know, even from another room or whatnot, and she'll get frustrated feeling like I've not heard her. But I will have logged it somewhere in the back nethers of my brain enough that I can repeat back what she just said or close enough to it, but it doesn't mean that I've been listening well. You know what I mean? So this isn't, all those steps that come before are important, you know, for me to be paying attention, making eye contact, feeling what she's feeling rather than just transfer. You get what I'm saying? 
So this is not that if you're good at doing that. Like, like this is actually listening. Reflect back as accurately as you can. And this is honestly, when I say word for word, I mean it. Like it'll feel really wooden, really artificial, really fake, really inauthentic. But honestly, to hear it come back is so helpful. When I've, been, when I've been the one sharing and Jamie will reflect back word for word to me what she heard me say, oftentimes I'll be like, oh, no, 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 that's not quite right. What I actually mean is, and it'll, take me, it'll help me actually go a layer deeper and a deeper to get a little more precise and actually a little closer to the truth of how I'm feeling. When you hear something come back at you, oftentimes you go, oh, it's a great way to kind of just hold the mirror up in a sense and go, is that actually how I'm feeling? Is that actually what I think? Oh, that's probably a bit too strong. You know what I mean? Or vice versa. Sometimes it can go the other way where, where it, it's, um, it, it not only helps you revise and then kind of clarify your thoughts and, and get to the bottom of those things, where sometimes actually you can hear it come back at you and, and it just hits you like really soberly, like, oh yeah, that is spot on. And, you can f- and, and, and it helps me when I struggle, because I often struggle to get in touch with my feelings, helps me get in touch with it to hear it and go oh that's actually right it's a gift to help me feel it um, and bring that awareness to myself and then when you think the speaker is done ask is there more and you might need to repeat this step a few different times you know is there more is there more Um, give the opportunity to kind of get to the bottom of it get to the bottom of what it is and then here comes the gift friends when the speaker is done ask of everything you have shared what is the most important thing you want me to remember? Because you're probably sitting there going, oh, flip, if someone's going to share all of their thoughts and feelings and all this stuff and I just need to reflect back and how am I supposed to process and hold on to all that? You're not. You don't need to hold on to it all. This is differentiation, right? This is being able to stay true to yourself and you get down to the bottom of it and you say, what is the most important thing? You only have to remember the one thing that they tell you at that point. Right? So you just have to reflect back, reflect back, respond, and then remember that one thing that they tell you at the end. That's a real gift. And it's also a real gift to the person who's doing the speaking because it forces them to actually go, actually, this is actually the real thing that matters. My language and feelings around this other thing over here might have been a lot stronger, but actually, as we've talked, I've realized that's not actually the real issue. The real issue is this one over here. Anyone ever experienced that? And I think that's the way it can work out. It's a real gift. And, and like I said, I didn't come up with this. This is Pete and Jerry Scazzaro from Emotionally Healthy Relationships. Um, highly, highly recommend and encourage. Um, but it's a wonderful practice because to listen well to another person, to feel truly heard, is as close to feeling love that most people can't tell the difference. So it's a wonderful gift that you can offer to others this Christmas. It's a wonderful gift you can offer to family members, to friends, to those that you're with. And you can do it kind of incognito. They don't need to know that you're running through... This, this is kind of practice, you know? But you can just do it. And you go, ah. Oh. So what I'm hearing you say is, and you just say back literally what they say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You'll see it in their face. They'll go, oh, they'll, you'll see it. Their facial expression will change when they start to feel heard. It's amazing. It's been a wonderful gift to feel truly loved. And so, friends, as we practice love, as we become a community who lives into this, the cornerstone of community being love, I'm reminded of Jesus' words in John chapter 15 where he says, greater love has no one than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. And this is part of the incarnational act of listening well to others as we lay down our own need to speak, we lay down our own need to offer opinions and advice, we lay down, you know, there's something sacrificial in that in order to love someone well. So a tremendous gift. 
But we remember at Christmas, I mean, Jesus, this wasn't just a nice thought in theory, in abstract land. No, Jesus, literally, Jesus, the one born in a manger, baby in a manger, pure, perfect, beautiful, you know, anticipated, celebrated, honored, went on to live a life, was laid down his life. Not for his own sake, not so that he could earn and deserve anything, you know, like, no, he didn't need to earn or deserve anything. But he willingly laid down his life, literally, concretely, tangibly, embodied, laid down his life so that we might have a life that we don't deserve, so that we might experience a love that we wouldn't know otherwise, so that his people might be invited into participating that space where we can help create a space of love and belonging for anyone and everyone. That's the heart of God, that we get to be people who create that and invite that and welcome others into that. And so, as we conclude, we're going to conclude with a time of communion where we literally remember Jesus' sacrificial love for us. But more than remembering, my heart and prayer has been that God would meet us in this moment, that His grace would work in and through us to make us a community of love, that we would understand what it means to be a loving, engaging in loving, meaningful relationships one with another, that we'd be willing to love each other well, listen well, you know, be sacrificial and selfless in our serving of others.